So my name is Mark Crouch. Uh, I'm an MD, and I completed my family practice residency training at In His Image. That's in Tulsa, Oklahoma. If you're a medical student, you're interested in medical missions, you should uh, look at In His Image. They got a booth downstairs. Um, where are we? Across the hall. They're somewhere in this building. Um, Currently, I work at uh, Nazarene General Hospital in Juwaka, which is in Papua New Guinea. Uh, that is a, the primary center for Nazarene Health Ministries. Anybody ever heard of Papua New Guinea? Anybody ever been to Papua New Guinea? Good. Anybody ever been to Kuju? Laura's barely putting her hand up, but I'm really excited to see Laura Myatt here. Um, so uh, I've worked there for about six years. I have a wife and four children. Two of ours were born at the hospital there, and uh, that's, that's our home now. I'm currently writing my uh, thesis for public health through the London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine, and some of my studies there have uh, inspired this uh, talk today. This is what I want to do. I'm going to tell a little bit about our place and what we do, and then I'm going to have you guys do a little activity and then we're going to go through some things. Um, I, I'm going to speed talk a little bit, but the reason is I want there to be time at the end for questions. Um, I can give you as much information as I feel like you ought to know or want to know, but I may be way off base. And so there may be certain things that, that you have a question about, and I'm happy to answer that. Bear in mind, I've only worked in any long-term capacity in Papua New Guinea, so that's where most of my uh, experiences is inspired from. Um, <clears throat> this is our facility. It's in the highlands of Papua New Guinea, uh, which is very lush and tropical, but it's about 6,000 feet. Um, there's a river there that you see, and that provides the hydroelectric power for our hospital. Um, boy, I am going to kill myself at some point. Okay. Uh, so this is the hospital here. This is all the support housing around the hospital. My house is up here. If I were taller, it'd be easier. But um, we we live up here, and then uh, this is the the valley, the Wagi Valley. Uh, that's tea growing over there, and then the taller trees are shading um, coffee trees. So coffee's a big thing where we are. Um, we uh, in 2018. <coughs> We saw about 70,000 patients through our clinic. We admitted about 7,000 patients to the hospital. We did about 3,000 deliveries, about 1,000 surgeries, and we planted four churches in our area. Um, we're the only hospital for about 500,000 people. Uh, we have six doctors and two surgeons. Uh, we train people who come to us. If you think you want to work as a missionary at this facility, you're going to learn to do C-sections, and you're going to learn to set bones. I don't care if you're a pediatrician or who you are. We're going to teach you those things because we need some help with our call pool. Um, so that's where I am. That's what it looks like. That's a snapshot of what we do. I've got a lot more information here for those who are interested in the stuff that we do. Um, you can come by and get a look. Good. All right. I might need an assistant. It's nice when your dad comes as your cheerleader because then you can make him do stuff. So... Um, about every, we're going to have groups of about four, and I'm going to be very rude to you guys and call you out. Do you mind coming over to this side of the room? I feel like they made me preach to a post here, so I'm trying to get everybody to come that side. Um, and then, so groups of four, 
Uh, each group of four will need one sheet of paper. Um, and then uh, you'll need at least, you'll need a marker. So if you have a group representative that wants to come up and get the marker, you guys are going to make something. <laughs> it's nice on a Saturday morning, 8 o'clock, make people move and wake up a bit. Yeah, you can rock those around. <coughs> All right, so uh, in a group of four, maybe five, maybe six, depending on how socially awkward you guys end up getting, looking around at the odd man out, um, your task is to collectively decide how to complete this activity. Um, it's 8.08. We're going to go until just about 8.13. One group may or may not have to present their results. I'm not going to disclose that information just yet. But you're going to create a one-page handout on how to take antiretroviral therapy, and your handout needs to convey these points. Number one, the medicine should be taken every day. Number two, the medicine should be taken at the same time of day. Number three, the patient should seek care quickly if they get sick. And number four, the medicine will not cure this illness, but it will help to control it. Uh, I would advise you at this stage to only use one side of that paper. The other side might be needed for something else. Um, so we're going to go until 8.13, uh, but in a minute or so, you might get a curveball. Ready, go. Okay, you have yeah, some additional information for you. All of your patients in this activity, their language is Melanesian pigeon. you have a little more information and all of your patients are illiterate. None of them can read or write. Okay, your last bit of information, you have one more minute to work on this, is you live in a country with no maps or calendars. Three, two, one, zero. Okay, so how did it go? Anybody have some feedback on that? Any comments, how that felt? Everybody feels really comfortable right now, I'm sure, knowing that in any moment I might ask you to come up here and 
show your work. Any thoughts about that activity? Easy, hard, challenging. Challenging. Okay. You got to figure out how to use pictures. Uh huh. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so it needs to come with some explanation. Yeah. Any other thoughts? Rebukes, recounts, suggestions, rebuttals? Moving on. <clears throat> the point is that the forces around your patients affect everything about them. Uh, those four points seem pretty simple when you're speaking to someone with a basic understanding of their body a basic understanding of what a pill is and the idea that you dose a pill and you take it at a a certain time. It becomes very different uh, when the the things around your patient and the things that define your patient uh, change. Uh, The good news is I gave you guys two extra minutes. The other good news is that nobody has to present the results except me. (laughs) So this is what we did. This is not perfect. It still creates issues. But it took me about two years, one, to learn that the HIV counseling I was doing with my patients was not working. Two, to actually listen to my Melanesian staff and say, what do you think we need to do to help people? And three, to work with them to come up with something like this, where it's very simple There's 780 languages in Papua New Guinea, but I can show this to somebody who speaks any one of them and give a visual representation of what I'm wanting them to do and accomplish with this medicine. So I I get to be the boss, so I say that I pass my own quiz, and we're going to move on. (laughs) Um, What is anthropology? I think this is a big question. I heard somebody down here mention that they studied anthropology uh, in undergrad. I have a great story about that. I'm not going to say it because uh, we got time issues and I want to get to the questions. But uh, when I first started studying anthropology at the London School, I had this picture of what it was, and and I was way off. Um, Anybody want to give a a one-word synonym for anthropology? People. I like that one. Culture. Good. I like that one, too. Uh, it's interesting. What is culture? It's what people do. Ah, it's what people do. So we think, and the first time I ever went overseas, it was to China in 1999. We just bombed their embassy. Uh, and so that was a really relaxing trip. Um, but it was the first time that I, I got this idea of, oh my gosh, look at this place where people dress differently, they eat different things, they wake up at different times, they do different exercise, everything seems different. It was all about what they do and what you see them do. But I think culture goes a bit, a bit bigger than that. As from Isaiah chapter 28, verse 20, You guys got that, right? Now this pla blanket no big pla in up long em can round him him yet long this pla. Uh says the bed is too short for somebody to sleep on and the blanket is not wide enough for them to wrap up in. 
<coughs> when we think of what people do, how they dress, what they eat as culture, uh, that, that bed's not long enough and that blanket's not wide enough. Um, Daniel Fountain says, what a person or group does in a certain area of life affects the whole. What they do is not culture. Uh, I like the idea of people. But people encompass a lot of things. Their upbringing, their genetics, their nutrition, their faith. All of that goes into it. And so if you're talking about studying people, which is a decent idea of what anthropology is, you have to go beyond just the idea of culture. Uh, this is a, a, these are great. These are called lithographs, for those of you who don't know. There used to be these things called books on paper. Uh, and books on paper were actually, uh, in the early days, they didn't have pictures, and then they had lithographs. There's a lithograph from a guy named Malinowski in 1922. He landed on the south coast of Papua New Guinea. He set up that little tent among the villagers, and he said, I'm going to be an anthropologist, and he studied them. And he's kind of considered the founder of uh, what's, con- what's called participant observation or field work in anthropology. And he said, to really know people, you have to live among them. Um, this is one of my favorite lines of his. He's talking about how you get your information as an anthropologist. And he said, lastly, not least, but lastly, you want to go to the few intelligent and unbiased missionaries in the area to get information. It's kind of, I, I like being uh, unintelligent and biased. So, thank you, Mr. Malinowski. Uh, however, he also said, scientific field work, meaning this observation of people, is far above even the best amateur productions. The amateur productions he's referring to are what missionaries write. Uh, there is, however, one point in which the latter often excel. This is in the presentation of intimate touches of native life. In scientific work, we are given an excellent skeleton, but it lacks flesh and blood. And that was the inspiration of the title of this talk. The skeleton of how a society arranges itself, how the people believe, think, interact with each other, what's valued, what their beliefs are. Uh, you, can, you can create a tree and then have branches coming off of that that describes that. But if you're going to be in the health field and you're going to be a missionary in some of these places, you're going to be dealing with flesh and blood. Uh, when the flesh is disrupted, when the blood is running, you're not as worried about the skeleton. You want to restore that, that whole person. Um, and I think this is true. I think if you go into a society and you say, I want to learn how this society is structured and how they interact, that's one thing. If you want to go and you want to sit on the bedside of a mother who is wailing over her recently deceased baby, uh, you're going to learn something else about that society uh, through that individual and through that encounter. <clears throat> so as medical missionaries, we are really more involved in the flesh and blood you need to know the skeleton, but you're going to be dealing with flesh and blood. Um, this is uh, Bohannon, 1954. Was doing the same thing as Malinowski in a tribe in Africa. She's describing this encounter where uh, one of her friends that she's known for a year now, she's living with this tribe, Amara, is trying to have a baby and can't have a baby. Baby's stuck. Mom's getting sick. Uh, and she describes it like this. The anthropologist cannot, like the chemist or biologist, arrange controlled experiments. Like the astronomer, they can only observe. 
But unlike the astronomer, their mere presence produces changes in the data that they're trying to observe. The claim to science must therefore rest on a meticulous accuracy of observation and on a cool, objective approach to the data. A cool, objective approach to Amara's death. Was I to stand aloof observing the course of events, I might otherwise never see the ceremonies connected with death and childbirth. I marched over to Yabo, the chief. Do you wish Amara to live? So this person is in there to study and figure out what is it that this society does? How does it structure itself? How do they approach childbirth and that kind of thing? This is not a physician. But as she sees somebody crumbling before her, she, she takes action. You're going to be in situations where, you know, the, the academics would say, uh, I'm really not going to tell that story, where the academics would say, how do you, you know, how do you um, embrace this culture and not change it and not change how people think and believe? Uh, but this woman, an anthropologist in 1954, said, I can't watch this woman die. I have to do something. And she offers to the chief to take Amara where? What kind of hospital? A mission hospital. So in 1954, she goes to this chief. She's watching this lady die. She's supposed to be an observer. And she says, I think we need to take her to the mission hospital. So anthropologists are not actually as objective as they used to think. It's changing now because anthropologists realize that they, they affect the things that they observe. Uh, we mentioned culture. Um, yeah, this is a picture from Papua New Guinea. This is not what all of my patients look like. <laughs> but uh, you'll see this in National Geographic and travel mags and all of that stuff. And we do see this on occasion during festivals and that kind of thing. Um, but a very, very amateur uh, medical anthropologist who's not worth quoting in any way said that the learned and internalized heterogeneous ideas and patterns that interact in society which can change over time is the culture. That was me. Don't write it down. Uh, the reason I say this is that we think of the, the behaviors as static. And actually, they're quite dynamic. <laughs> Things change over time. Uh, Papua New Guinea is changing and perhaps changing more rapidly than any country in the history of the world. They've gone from tomahawks to Toyotas to Twitter in about a generation. How that affects, you can't just say that affects their behavior. Those kinds of changes are penetrating into deeper levels of the people and the society. And so what was considered Papua New Guinea culture 40 years ago is wildly different than what Papua New Guinea is today. I've only been there six years and I'm scratching the surface of what this kind of change means. Um, so, but we do need to, we need to think of things in, in ways that make sense because we're trying to take care of people. So all this complicated culture and anthropology and what do people think and how do they believe and all of that. Um, what's an example? What does that look like? Um, let's take time, how people experience time. <clears throat> According to secularism, this is what time in history looks like. We're in an hourglass, the sand is running out. We don't know when it's coming or why it's coming. Maybe it's pollution, maybe it's nuclear war. We don't know. But at some point, 
the last grain of sand is going to hit the bottom and we're done. This is animism's view of time and history. Everything is circular. The way that things were before is probably how things are going to end up again, and we're somewhere on this carousel. Uh, And I don't know exactly where I am on the carousel, but eventually it's probably going to be like it was with my folks or whatever. Uh, I don't work in a reincarnational um, uh, area that, that has that belief, but I imagine that's there's some of that too. Uh, this is how the Christian might look at time in history. In the beginning, you start an arrow. History plays out. You go to the book of, the Re- of Revelation, and we know that there's not a finite conclusion. We know that there's a new heaven and a new earth. And so there's an arrow into the, into the future. But we know that in that day, everything will be made new. Thankfully, all tears will be wiped away. And as we progress along that arrow, we call it development. That's a very, very Western North American concept. But we like to put that, that there was a beginning, things are progressing somewhere, and eventually there will be a new heaven and a new earth. So functionally, this is how my brain, my body thinks of time. When I ask people, what's the history of the present illness? When did your cough start? When did you have the green sputum? When did you start getting a low appetite? When did you start losing weight? What made you come to the hospital? How did that IV fluid bolus make you feel? Are you feeling any better? They had a beginning, they had some events, and now we're going in towards something else. The same thing is true if I'm trying to work on a program in my hospital. I'm working with my staff. Hey, we're not checking the weight on our HIV patients at their visits. Uh, so here's what we do. We buy a new scale. Everybody comes in the door. Everybody gets weighed. You write it down on the chart. At the end of the visit, you review, you make sure that it's done, and then they come down to see the doctor. And then if it's not, I call. That's a very, very North American approach to solving that problem. What if your patients and your staff are thinking like that? Very, very frustrating. For the first couple of years that I tried to do this stuff, I just thought, There's no way to do this. (laughs) There is no reconciliation. When I'm experiencing and expecting time to go this way and the course of an illness to be described this way, but my patients are experiencing it like this, I can't even get on that carousel. It's not making any sense. And it became very frustrating until I discovered the slinky. I have to be willing to accept that I'm going to get maybe a couple steps forward and go back a step and then try to go a couple steps forward and go back a step. In this model, which group has made a concession to the other way of thinking? Both of them. Both of them. Where I work in Papua New Guinea, people want what we provide in services. They want medicine. They're sick and tired of burying their babies. And they see that what we have works. But it does not go straight into their worldview. You have to make adjustments. You have to adapt things. They want this kind of stuff, but they don't think in the way that all of our biomedicine was developed. And so you have to try and make a difference in a way that's not necessarily palatable, but workable uh, within that society. So we're going to go to talking about medical anthropology And for this, it's a huge topic, and I do want to make sure we have time for questions. So 
to, to talk about this, I'm going to throw out some terms um, that you'll hear about and try to apply them to where I work in Papua New Guinea. Uh, we'll define them, um, and then uh, maybe a couple examples, but then um, then questions. Uh, so medical anthropology is a thing. I had no clue until I saw the course offering in my course catalog at the school. And apparently it's a degree. I mean, you can get degrees in this. I had no clue. Um, this is from University of Connecticut. They have a master's degree in medical anthropology. Who knew? Um, anybody have a master's degree in medical anthropology? Who wants to come up here and take the mic? Okay. Uh, seeing none, we'll press on. Uh, illness and disease. This is a pretty important concept. I love this quote from Castle. Illness is what the patient feels when they go to the doctor. Disease is what he has on the way home. So once you put a name on it, it's a disease. But before you named it, that patient had an experience. They were experiencing something. And we like this model, don't we? The, the biopsychosocial, spiritual model of well-being. Some, one of those was disrupted and affected the way that they felt. They didn't feel that they had maximum well-being, so they go to the doctor after they go to the bush doctor and try the moringa leaf and all that stuff. So this is how we, we think of things. We say, ah, I know what you got. You got, a, you got this disease, and thankfully you have that disease because I have a code for that and I can bill for it. <laughs> and I promise you, your patient is not thinking about that code. They might be thinking about what you're billing them, and they certainly will two weeks later when they get the bill. But that's not how they're experiencing their illness. And we've become very, very good at disease. And we've lost a little bit of the illness. In fact, we're giving illnesses disease names that don't even need them. People who previously may have been just considered a little eccentric now have a personality disorder. Because we can bill for that. We can capture those customers. So we have to be very careful about this idea of a patient comes into my clinic and I'm trying to figure out what's their disease process so that I can fix it. The patient didn't come into your clinic for that reason. They came into your clinic because they had an illness. And it's your job to figure out why does this person not feel well? I'll give you a big hint. It's not often truly biological. Um, so Mark Nichter in 2008 described the local illness taxonomy. It's how a, a society defines its own illnesses. They don't give a name to it. There's one in Papua New Guinea called Blutnogud, bad blood. A woman in her early 50s who's been hunched over in the garden for three and a half decades doing this with the bush knife and the spade. And then all of a sudden, her menzies dry up. She got tons of pain right here, especially when she gets up in the morning or when she sits or stands for a long period of time. And she comes in and she says, what? We got blut no good. All that bleeding that I used to have every month is building up on the inside and it's giving me this back pain. And the first year I thought, these guys are so rudimentary. They don't know anything about the body. They actually know a lot more than I do. It makes perfect sense perfect sense when I understand it from her perspective. The local illness 
is I've been working in the garden for 35 years every day and my Menzies stopped. Where's the blood going? I got all this back pain. The coincidence, it's just, it's just perfect. When they describe that, it's, it's a beautiful, non-scientific illness. And that's just one example. Different societies, my society has, has tons more. And the illness can shape the society. The society can shape the illness. These are the, the names of the people who kind of describe these relationships. Biggest culprit, or the most studied culprit, is probably HIV. You have an illness that defines a society. We don't even call them HIV patients anymore. Anybody know the acronym that you're supposed to use in literature? P-L-H-I-V. People living with HIV. You've defined an entire group of people, a society based on their HIV status. People living with HIV. That illness has defined that society. Similarly, the society defines the illness. In my society, a woman with HIV who's unmarried might be locked into a village hut until finally her brothers, at the behest of her father, go into this village, rip that hut apart, while the drunk husband is off somewhere else starting fights with his new wife. Take her out of that hut, bring her barely alive into the emergency room, and I walk into that emergency room where she's laying on bed three with her father standing next to her, and she's got these agonal gasps happening. And we do the drugs, and we do the ventilations and all this stuff, and after a while it becomes obvious that we're not going to succeed And I look to this father who only gave her away in marriage four months ago. And the next time he sees his daughter, she's struggling to take her last breaths on my emergency room bed. And I say, Your daughter's dead. That society has created an illness there. Those moments, that HIV status becomes pretty much irrelevant because how the society responds to it has changed how that woman is experiencing her HIV. (coughs) Becomes critically important. Uh, Dan Fountain again wrote about going into a village um, wanting to teach them how to prevent diarrhea. I had come with a carefully prepared presentation about village sanitation and the need for latrines, but there was no place in their worldview for such mundane matters. For them, diseases come from social and spiritual disorder. What do latrines have to do with that? So if you show up somewhere and you've got your health talk and you've got your four bullet points and then all of a sudden you realize these people experience this stuff in a widely different way than I've ever been taught to think of it, you might as well put that in the bin and start over. It takes time and years to figure some of this stuff out. I love this one. Medical pluralism. There are lots of therapies out there and they come from many different systems and many different actors. This is a Facebook feed about, it's from the PNG Doctors Forum. You see that at the top. These are all the same day within the same few minutes of each other. Uh, One PNG doctor is is, um, putting out there for everybody to see about this Eastern philosophy on how to meditate and, and... Meditate your illnesses away. In the middle, this is nice. Um, 
good good fundraising for the televangelists, you will get a miracle in an hour. Uh, over here, I mentioned the moringa leaf. It's very popular in Papua New Guinea. It's nice because not only does it fix your edema, but it cures your HIV and your cancer too, uh, and prevents you from getting diabetes or sick sugar. So you'll you'll even in Papua New Guinea, you know, you hear about bush medicine. Well, that's changing. Remember, tomahawks, Toyotas, Twitter. These societies are getting all of this stuff at the same time. So all these therapies are available, and we call that medical pluralism. Comparable to that, medical syncretism. These therapies and these systems are not existing in parallel. We think of it because it's not the biomedical model. We think, oh, okay, well, they're, they're doing Moringa leaf. They're, they're an herbalist, or they're a faith healing person, or what have you. But a lot of these are being tried simultaneously, right? Um, and who can blame them? You know, old Papa's got inoperable cancer, and if we don't do enough to take care of him, his spirit is going to come back and curse our ground, and we won't have gardens anymore. Yeah, I'll try everything. I'll, I'll do every which kind of therapy modality you got. And we do this. This is me getting ready to do surgery at Kujip. This is Bill McCoy praying with patients. We do the same thing. And we should do the same thing. We should embrace this, this idea that we can do medicine, we can do Jesus. And the blending of Jesus with medicine, when done appropriately and in a good way, can be powerful. That's why people come to this conference, because they believe that. Um, So medical syncretism is the blending of these things. Uh, Witchcraft, animism, the spirits. Uh, Evans Pritchard uh, is the guy who wrote this, Witchcraft Oracles and Magic Among the Azande in Africa. He studied them and he noticed that they would, you know, somebody, a a little hut is, um, falls down on somebody, they die. And everybody starts talking about, oh, okay, where's, where's, the, where's the witchcraft? Who's the witch? In PNG, it's Sanguma. Oh, and then Sanguma. And they got Birua Blongian. So they're always looking for, oh, who, who made the witchcraft? Who put the curse on this person? And I, again, I used to think, man, this doesn't make any sense, don't you? I mean, you can tell, you know, you've got blood in your body. If you run out of blood, you're going to die. It's not that hard, guys. <clears throat> he said, witchcraft is not invoked to explain how something happens. It's invoked to explain why something happens. Which means you can't just go and teach a society how the body works, what illness is, what surgery does, what medicines do, and, and expect this to go away. They're not thinking, this is how my body got sick. What they're asking is, why me, why now? Somebody cursed me. They understand that termites eat the wood and the house becomes weak and it falls down. But why at this time on that person? It's because they got this enemy over here and he put a spell on them so that they would be underneath the house when it fell down. Three months into our mission's career, my son Levi had the worst asthma attack I've ever seen. I thought he was going to die. Laid him on that same emergency room bed, bed number three in the ER, uh, he got IV aminophilin, IV magnesium, he got albuterol, he got steroids, he got every which thing we could try and give him. He was on oxygen all night long. We could barely get his sats above 72%. And it was the longest night of my life. In that moment, 
as a physician, am I asking, how did this happen? It's not the question I was asking that night for 11 agonizing hours. The question I was asking was, why? And why now? Uproot my family, move across the world. I'm already feeling lost and tired. Uh, I just laid two people in the grave today. I get home, my son's about to die. Not asking God how he's got asthma. How is his bronchus constricting? That's pretty irrelevant. I am asking, why him? Why me? Why now? We ask the same questions. We don't call it witchcraft. Uh, Ethnocentrism. Neocolonialism. Anybody heard these terms? Yeah. Uh, It's an interesting concept. I recently got a smartphone. It's over there. Uh, I airdrop every day now. I am a man of the new millennium. It's awesome. I got the smartphone because I also got a portable ultrasound device, which connects to the smartphone, and I think it's phenomenal. It's called the Butterfly. Anybody have one? Yeah? Uh, you use it? Yeah, where? Where? Okay, yeah. So, I mean, you can use it anywhere. Um, when, we, when we figure out how to use this ultrasound uh, in the right ways, I'm, I'm smelling a Nobel Prize for this tech. Um, but this is from their website, and I thought it was very interesting. Uh, you know, uh, uh, some of the global health folks, they, they care a little bit about the health and a lot about the journalism. I won't name any names. Um, and so they like brochures and stuff. So they get this article published in, I think, the New York Times, um, and this was a, a, just a fascinating paragraph to me. You're talking about diagnosing pneumonia in kids in Africa with the ultrasound device. So this guy from Toronto joins up with some um, Ugandan, I think it was Uganda, clinical officers, and they go out and they do these programs, and they can beam these images back to Toronto. It's fascinating. Everybody's like, oh, this is amazing, you know. And we can finally bring this great ultrasound radiology expertise into Uganda. And they say success will be achieved in this program when Dr. Anguyo, the clinical officer, and Dr. Cherniak agreed When those officers' diagnoses agree with those of the ultrasound specialists in Toronto at least 80% of the time. It's hard for me to imagine a more ethnocentric view of this kind of intervention. How about when kids stop dying when they're three years old? Can we choose to define success that way? Can we not define success by what a radiologist in Toronto who's never even seen an African patient thinks about an image. It's that concept of what we have is central. What we have is the right thing. That's what we strive for is what this group of people has. So what a university hospital in Toronto has in its radiology department, that's what everybody should strive for. That's ethnocentrism. And we have to be very careful about that. Uh, Neocolonialism is somewhat related to that. It's a guy named Fanon. Uh, In 1959, he wrote uh, A Dying Colonialism. And in it, he talks about this idea that, okay, after World War II, we decided, okay, colonialism is wrong. We shouldn't have these powers owning other peoples, owning other societies and countries. 
And so everybody says, okay, that's colonialism, we can't do that anymore. And he says, as colonialism is dying, there's a new colonialism taking its place. And one of those, among many, is the pillar of modern medicine. He calls it a totem of modernity. So these countries got a little bit exposed to the type of medical systems that that their colonial powers had. And then they say, oh, no, no, you guys can have your country back. But they still know what modern medicine is. And it's almost set up as this idol or this pillar in their society. And because it was not generated from within their society, it's actually a remnant or a totem of the colonial period. And so you've got this, this Western-based medical system within a society that did not generate it. And so Fanon writes that this is, this is like a symbol of the colonial powers. And so the people respond to that symbol in certain ways because of that. And there's power discrepancies and that kind of thing. So when I come into Papua New Guinea as a white, Western-educated physician practicing biomedicine, I've already brought tons of baggage into my relationship with those people and my patients. Uh, I have some and they have some. And so you have to consider that. You have to negotiate it. I'm not going to talk about this one. I wanted to, but... Um, how does that, what does that look like where I, where I live? <clears throat> this is a regional um, TB meeting. You can see the marshmallow down there. Um, that's me in the hat in the front and center. I like to go front and center in photos because I'm a short guy and I let everyone stand behind me. Hides my height. Uh, but these are various nursing officers, a couple doctors who work in TB care in our area of Papua New Guinea. And I was sitting in on this meeting and trying not to say very much. And one of the doctors, Papua New Guinea doctor, uh, the discussion was going a certain way and he actually used this phrase. <clears throat> he said, TB is a disease of chance. And HIV is a disease of choice. Implication there being that those who have HIV have it because of their risky behaviors. I don't think that that young lady that I described or her father made a choice that she would die on my emergency room bed that day. don't think they chose that. Where did this concept come from? Where did this Papua New Guinea doctor get the idea that individuals must be responsible through their own choices for their health? What society says that? Ours. Our society says that. That guy had never been outside of Papua New Guinea, but he was well educated. He was a physician. So what system taught him to think that? What medical system taught him to think that? Ours did. Ours did. It's a remnant. It's a totem of modernity. It's this, this dangerous way of making medicine this sort of neo-colonialism. And it has kickback. You know, you look at this woman in the bush holding her knife and her baby at the same time. And then people come in with, you know, injuries to their children. And we had a pediatrician for a year. And he, he brought me a kid who had this... I forget what it was, but he had some injury, and he said, I've never seen a case of this that wasn't NAT. I didn't know what NAT was. Okay, Ted, what do you, what do you mean by that? You guys probably know what it is. Uh, Non-accidental trauma abuse. <clears throat> he said, I've never, seen, I've never seen one that's not NAT. And I was kind of like, well, you've probably never seen that before either. 
a woman carrying her baby in a belum on the back of her head while she's hacking away bush from her garden. Um, so his, his, that, that concept is, there's blame. There's immediate blame. Somebody's, to, somebody's at fault, either neglect or deliberate abuse. And I'm saying, are we, are we so quick to assign responsibility for health because of maybe our background or how we think about illness and disease? This is an artist's rendering of the Pacific International Hospital in Port Moresby. Uh, looks beautiful. Their webpage says, hey, come and meet our doctors. It's kind of interesting. Wonder where they got the idea to put that picture on their website. Wonder whose medical system they're, they're idolizing. What if we could redefine that so that they are actually seeing their medical system as valuable for what it is, for what they create? This is Dr. Imelda. She's one of the graduates from our training program at QGIP. She's examining a patient in the bush. I really like this. In the health center in the back, they've done a really good job of setting up their running water. You have a sink and then the bucket underneath it because you don't pipe the water out, but you can change the bucket. Um, but what if we can get away from these ideas that we're going to have these really sleek, fancy, western-looking hospitals and doctors to we can create health for our people? Uh, so, last thing. Uh, one, one thing that's helped me is just um, a practical framework for thinking of some of these things, whether you're seeing patients or whether you're trying to promote health in the village. Uh, again, Dan Fountain. I like this. Uh, the circle at the center. This is mostly around the individual, and I'll touch on that. But what is real? What is real for that individual? Often that comes from their faith, whatever faith it is. You go a layer outside of that, what is true? That shapes their beliefs. Outside of that, what is good or what is best? That shapes their values, things that are important to them. And then what is done? That's their behavior. That's the food. That's the dress. That's the exercise. So we see that outside layer and we think, oh, that's the culture. I would argue that we need to start really considering adding this. What's that society like? That society will create pushback. You can't have a tribal Papua New Guinean holding a laptop and tell me it's not affecting these other things in him. It certainly is. And it changes over time. So if you want to affect people, in the old way we would say, okay, let's, let's change the behavior. And in PNG, they did this for decades. Missionaries would come in. Hey, stop sacrificing that chicken under that tree. Oh, what do I do instead? Uh, I don't know. Uh, decorate the church with flowers. Has anything really changed? There's a few more chickens and eggs around. But have they actually gone into that realm of faith, truth, values? We're dealing with that like crazy right now. We have this country that was just massively evangelized at that behavioral level. And so the people will, and I've heard it from the pulpit in Papua New Guinea, where the pastor says, how do you get your name in the book of life? You come to this church in the morning and you put Bilas around, Bilas's decorations. And it's because we didn't have these, these things in order. 
And the order that we need to think about is this. So how do you reconcile biblical truth with a respectful cultural relativism or anthropology? In some cases, you don't. In some cases, you use Christ and his message to say, stop locking your women into village huts and watching them die. Because it's wrong. That you can't just go and say, everything about the way you do things is wrong. But you have to change the inside of an individual to affect those other things. And eventually, you'll see that society shift as well. It takes time, and it's painful. Because I don't know how many moms or babies or grandparents I've seen in my hospital who lose their life because of something that's related to this has very little to do with biology. Or we know the biology, we can do something about it. But all the other layers were never addressed. And that's really what gets them. So I call this an essential introduction to medical missions anthropology um, because it doesn't matter how many village health teams you send out. It doesn't matter how many patients you do physical therapy and rehab exercises for in the hospital. It doesn't matter how many surgeries you do. If we ignore this kind of stuff, we're, we're a clanging symbol because we need to get down into the, the faith of people, what they value um, with the message that we've been graciously given, uh, which is Jesus Christ. Um, so this is what Malinowski um, did and, and showed us in 1922. I'm going to embarrass somebody in the second row. There's Laura Myatt. Uh, she came to Kujit. This is my maternity ward staff. This is, this is what medical missions anthropology is to me now. I live with these folks every day. I go to work with them. I struggle with them. I watch their sisters struggle to have babies. I bury some of them. Um, and, and I try to learn from that. Uh, so that as I progress, eventually I won't see those things happening as much. I know I can't redeem it all overnight, but if I can appreciate what's really happening in their lives from, from a variety of levels and not just say, oh, why are they behaving like this? If I can understand what they're actually experiencing and living and I can try to join that, eventually I can change them, change our community, and change our country. Um, so, in true PNG fashion, I've gone just a few minutes under the time. I was hoping to have more time for questions, but I'm happy to entertain any questions now. I have a question. Mm-hmm. Um, for, uh, for a people group that tends to think more in a circular fashion, like you mentioned earlier, uh, does that mean they're less susceptible to making a logical error that would say, uh, because I... Because a certain thing happened after I did this, that means that this thing that I did caused it. So, like, people in America will say, I snorted this essential oil and it made my mm. HIV go away. Mm. Yeah. Like so the question is, in those societies that, that maybe understand time in a circular fashion, uh, maybe is there less uh, concept of cause and effect? Yeah. Um, like, I did this and this happened. Um, Maybe, maybe there is. I certainly still um, get patients who say things like that, where, oh, I did this and that happened. Um, but the, the time frame 
is is adjusted. Uh, when I sit, I don't, Laura probably experienced this a little bit, but when I asked a patient, um, hey, why are you in the clinic today? Uh, well, 39 years ago, my brother hit me with a stick. Yeah, did you hear the question I just asked you? <laughs> but for them, it makes sense. This, this everything is connected in this circle. And I'm like, okay, so 39 years ago, your brother hit you with a stick. But... Uh, you haven't had that sore for 39 years, have you? Oh, no, that was last week. Oh, okay, so now we're getting somewhere. <laughs> so now we're in the slinky, at least. <laughs> so then I say, oh, okay, now tell me about that. Okay, the sore this, the sore this. But really, Doc, what happened was 39 years ago, he hit me with a stick in that spot. And there's bad blood in there, I know it. And it's been building up and building up and building up. Okay, so why, why this week? Well, a couple weeks ago... My unmarried daughter got pregnant. So all these things become wrapped up into that sore on the leg. Uh, so there, there's some cause and effect still, but the time frame is not as immediate. Does that make sense? Does that answer your question? Uh, A bit? Yeah. Enough. Okay. <laughs> Other thoughts? Yeah. Yeah, uh, yeah. The the layer upon layer upon layer is not done in a for me three minute clinic visit. Uh, it's done over time. Uh, it's done with um, teaching and living among them. In that moment, I'm not trying to address those. What I'm trying to do is to understand them so that I can better serve the acute need at the time. So I don't go into that all the time. But for the first year, I was just massively frustrated. I, was, I, I couldn't work. I couldn't function. Until I started thinking about this, and I thought, okay, in their head, this makes perfect sense. So like that example, they say 39 years ago, and in my first year, I would have said, this encounter is not worth having anymore. But now I think about, okay, this, this is why they're saying that. It's become apparent. And I, and I say exactly what I said. Okay, so uh, long pula time you've been fight long this pula stick. So now you've been come long one him something, one him new pula siki come up. So I say, okay, so yeah, I acknowledge it and then I say, but, but now what made you come today? And then we can get off that circle and we can get onto the slinky. Does it make sense? Okay. Any questions? I want to know missionary work in addition to medical work and helping treat medically and what impact that has or if it's been a gateway to facilitate those conversations. Yeah, the question is uh, how do I um, do missionary work alongside medical work? Uh, I'd like to know that too. And when you let, when you find out, let me know. <laughs> uh, we we get Gloria Whelan writes. Uh, it's very difficult to preach a sermon when you're clamping arteries, and it is. I've not actually tried it, but I suspect that it is. I've preached a sermon and I've clamped arteries, but not at the same time yet. Uh, where I work, um, my my particular job, my particular focus is not as ministry and missional uh, per se. It's very much medical. 
uh, hard medicine, full-spectrum medicine. Uh, this, this concept I struggle with. Uh, how do I work in um, ministry into medicine? Everybody will struggle with that. It doesn't matter where you are, who you are, what discipline you're, you're in. And in residency, I had an experience. I was working on, we have a mobile medical van at In His Image, and, and I was, the other resident couldn't come that night, so I had to see all the patients. And I was just, I was like, God, I can't do this. I can't, I can't minister to people and deal with their medicine. He gave me, in that time, a tool, which was for me, but I don't think it's for everybody. And he basically told me, Mark, every day that you practice medicine, there's going to be one person who wasn't supposed to see any doctor that day except you. And your job is to keep the antenna up and see if you can figure out who it is. And I'll be honest, there are days where I feel like I nailed it. And there are days where I get to the end of the day and I'm like, I missed it. Um, but I see 40 to 50 patients a day. I got a hospital full of 150 sick people. We got moms and babies having problems all over the place. Um, Yeah, you don't have enough to do all of it perfectly. So I can't give you a perfect answer, Uh, but I can can give you an encouragement that they, they can be reconciled. And sometimes people feel like, I need to do more mission, I need to do more ministry. And if that's important, if that's vital to you, you need to find a place where you can do that. Uh, I love, I love getting bloody, and and I love blood and guts medicine. Um, so I do that, but then I try to keep the antenna up. And I've seen people accept Christ in my clinic room. I've seen churches planted out of what the hospital does through our chaplains and stuff. Um, and for me, I had to realize, I'm, yeah, I'm I'm a I'm a tool in someone else's hand. And as a tool, I can't say, you know, you really need to be using me like this. Does that make sense? Yes, it does. Okay. Uh, it is 9.04. Uh, I'm going to call it, let people go, but I'm going to be here for those who want to talk a little bit more. So thank you guys for coming. Thank you for listening.